0: Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So, before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable, and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Sophie Clark, and I've been really looking forward to sharing this one with you. Sophie is a director of an organization called Capacity that's based in the northwest. It's based in Liverpool. And the best way to describe them really is they, they bridge the gap between consultancy and delivery. They call themselves a do tank, not just a think tank. So what is it they do? Well, they do a whole range of things, but their core purpose is about making public services people services, which seems obvious, but I haven't met anybody who has explained it quite as well as Sophie does in the interview that you're about to listen to. When I first met Sophie and her colleague, Chris Catterall, who's the chief executive of Capacity, we were talking about the work Capacity are doing in children's residential care, and specifically the Juno project, which is challenging the broken system at the minute, which is very reliant on private providers who charge a lot, but don't deliver great outcomes for kids. But we also spend time talking about delivery more generally, the importance of relationships, And then specifically on the Juno project, Sophie describes the challenges of getting that up and running and getting that service properly funded. So with no further ado, let's hear from Sophie. Sophie, a really warm welcome onto the podcast. Um, We've only recently met actually, but in the couple of conversations that I've had with you, I was totally convinced that I had to get you on for a conversation particularly around all the great work that you're doing with capacity but we, we will talk about that in detail um, but just before we do it'd be great if you could just say hello to the listeners and tell them a little bit about who you are.
1: Great, lovely. Hi, I'm Sophie Clark. I'm one of the directors here at Capacity, um, and the work that I'm doing is all around supporting change for children and families across the Liverpool City Region. I live here in Liverpool with my partner and two fairly young children. And in terms of my background, I'm an English graduate. Andrew, I. uh, went to university here in the city and then spent 11 years at a charity called The Reader. So I, I grew up really in, in a sort of, um, in a third sector environment, working for a brilliant charity who were using literature as a tool for social change.
0: So you knew right from the start you, you wanted to work in, I mean, I don't know if you would have called it the third sector. It's sort of a, a bit of a, of a jargony term, but you wanted to work in an area that had social impact.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think I'd, as I think you do when you're in your third year of uni, I'd sort of edge towards, uh, think about doing a uh, PGCE and knew that I wanted to do something that was about people and, and probably children. Um, and it was a sort of, as these things always are, a sort of accidental, um, meeting really with, um, a customer who used to come into a cafe where I worked who told me about the reader and, um, yeah, I mean, the, the first few years I was there, um, I was working a lot with children and children who were growing up in, in care in Wirral, which is the area that I was from, mm. and it was just such an amazing experience, you know, seeing how literature can unlock, you know, all that we bring with us in our sort of inner lives um, and, you know, the potential for, for, for sort of change. It was just brilliant, and the reader when I started was very, very small um, and grew quickly. We went from sort of like a team of, I think it was nine or ten when I joined, to 160 staff over a thousand volunteers national programs and stuff when I left so it was a great organization to be in in terms of understanding um you know how do you keep the quality of the experience really really high um as an organization is growing so a lot of the roles I did was around quality values um teaching and learning and stuff like that so a really great foundation really for you know when thinking about how do we reimagine public services so that they're more focused yeah. on people and caring? Um, it was a great a great place to start.
0: Yeah, and just just on the reader, is that using literature to to help with speech and language, or is it about building confidence, or what? What was the ambition? Yeah,
1: so, so um, it's I mean, its its origins were very much focused around giving people who may not read for pleasure um opportunity to connect with literature and you know with with a fundamental thought that you know literature books and reading are one of the cheapest tools that we've got to help us with being a human being and um, so the so shared reading the kind of model that we developed um, and grew was you know a, a poem or a sh- stories read aloud in a group environment and you might have people who you know in in any other walk of life you'd never meet you know maybe yeah. the gp waiting room or in the pub and um, but you know diverse groups of people who might be meeting in a community environment in the library and um, we did a lot of work in in care homes in prisons in schools. Um, and schools and i really through reading aloud and making that experience really accessible and sort yes. of um you know equitable just like creating an environment where people can sort of interact with it on their terms so it might be but I love that I love that line or this is making me think about this part of my you know, relationship and ultimately very quickly the literature serving as a catalyst for like really meaningful conversation so a lot of the outcomes were around confidence around social connection sense of purpose um, and for the children that I was working with who you know originally um, we worked with a group of young people who were in like a therapeutic fostering program and it was really a space um, for them to reflect to have a lovely relationship with somebody kind of outside of the kind of traditional system um, and use that as a space to support their own emotional well-being and yeah you know it was great
0: reading is fantastic i'm a huge reader myself i wasn't when i was younger i've become a a huge reader and it is a wonderful way um it it, on the face of it reading feels like a very personal thing but it's a great way to connect with people actually you know you, you read a book reading aloud even i was listening to a podcast with hugh jackman you know the actor yeah, um, yeah, and he yeah. was saying actually that him I, I don't know whether this is true it's really admirable if it is but he was saying that his wife and he read to each other each morning yeah. as a way of staying staying connected so i think we'd maybe try that once and think that was lovely and then probably never do it again but oh. it is
1: <laughs> and, and i think you know a way to understand that we've all got different perspectives and different experiences and, you know, some of the most interesting moments in shared reading groups are when actually people can see and feel very different things, but how do hold that, you know, and um, I think that's an important kind of reality for us to remind yeah. ourselves of you know right. um. so yeah it's really really good and you know and I must admit um, as you can probably tell as it's where we've begun it, it's a thread that I, sort, I really do hold still I mean, you know, we've used shared reading in local authorities for so some of our kind of kick-off meetings and you know with yeah. new sector clients because it's a leveler you know and, yeah. and you know it's yeah it's a, it's a brilliant tool.
0: Fantastic so did you go from the reader to capacity and, and if so how long, ago, how long ago was that?
1: I did, yes. So I moved to Capacity in sort of early 2019. Capacity had just won um, a contract to work with rural council and to work with families and community organisations to redesign their early help offer for families.
0: I think now is the time to get into what capacity yeah. is, so right. one of the previous interviewees in the podcast was chris wright from from caps twenty two who I know you know really well um, obviously caps twenty two were involved in the setup of capacity, and on that podcast he described it as some as one of the things he was most proud of because as you know, he 's stepping down as yeah. the chief executive of caps twenty two and I asked him What were you most proud of? And and this was the first thing he talked about. So for the listeners um, who may not be familiar with capacity, could you just say a little bit about what it is and how it makes an impact?
1: Absolutely. So capacity exists to try and make public services people services. By that, we mean we want the Northwest to be the best place to grow up, to grow wise, grow old, um, and to support that, we work with a range of public um, and third sector partners really to try and help them overcome the barriers that are preventing positive change. You know, it, we're, we're a very untraditional kind of consultancy organisation in that we we do more doing, um, yeah. you know, than the most. So less of a think tank, more of a do tank. And we're set up in a way that means we can spend a lot of time really listening and understanding challenges and, and, and opportunities um, but then working with brilliant leaders to actually implement the, the changes and, and the, the things that are needed to you know to actually move things forward but there's no like one size fits all approach that we take Um you know we've got a range of services from business planning and leadership coaching through to service design and um, organizational development support but I think the common thread across all of it is that commitment to really, really listening. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're, an, we're an experienced team and we're good at what we do, but we don't come in claiming to know to know the answer. You know, we're, yeah. often the, the challenge is really understanding the question. You know, and yeah. and so yeah, that's that's definitely where we play closest attention, and you know, we bring to the table a lot of challenge and creativity and and space where brilliant leaders within other organisations can get that time to to think, you know, and and explore the changes that they'd like to make. Yeah, I'm
0: clicking on your your website and that time to think for leaders bit is is really important and I certainly, when I consider some of the leaders within public services that that we support, they just have one meeting after the other and there's just no time to do any thinking or anything like that, so I I really admire that. I just want to come to what I think is one of the golden threads that runs through what you do, which is the importance of effective early help. So can you tell me a bit more about that overarching philosophy and how and how you make that work?
1: Absolutely. And I'm so I think a really good example is is the work you know that we touched on earlier, that we supported Royal NBC to develop a new approach to early help. You know, I guess the philosophy behind that work is it's families who know best what they really need and want and i think there was a shared awareness within the council within partners and within the community that the current system um heavily dictated by you know thresholds referral pathways um you know long waiting times to access support you know wasn't working it 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 wasn't early and it wasn't helping you know you look at the data around and the number of families who were escalating into social care and stuff like that so so we've um we've just finished a three-year project there the first year we spent talking to shadowing listening to to families across the borough and um, we worked with over the 450 families some of whom had never engaged with early help before some of whom were in you know the kind of final stages of care proceedings and you know a really kind of wide variety of, of families and experiences we listened closely to what they what they needed and wanted, you know, and the kind of core messages that we heard at the beginning were, for many families across that kind of spectrum, the sort of fear that came with asking for help and that, you know, seeing the sort of council logo and thinking a likely possible outcome here is I'll lose my child and that, you know, being a massive barrier and finding out far too late that actually there were loads of organisations and people who could help them, So, you know, and the kind of the fundamental message we heard was we don't want services. You know, when we've got hundreds of examples of moments of change for families, it was about a relationship with a brilliant person, whether that was a neighbour or a teacher or, uh, you know, somebody working in a children's centre. It was the quality of that relationship. So so we could hear, you know, we we got a really good grounding in, in what, what the experience would be like for families they wanted a much more empowering interaction with early help that built on their strengths and that that we could see very early on that kind of voluntary organizations and groups in the community who have those trusted relationships already were going to be key um to the new way of working so we then spent a year of testing stuff out so we worked with the local authority and a network of charities and vcse organizations and we're all to um you know try a range of approaches. So for example, um we got some funding from lottery to pilot a family coaching model okay. where um, families could lock onto a website. And they could choose their coach and very quickly access sort of a minimum of six weeks of coaching. You know, and in terms of impact, the, the results were really, really promising. And um, we worked with the Chooser Trust to secure some funding for like a really hyper-local grant-making process so that um, people in a community called Seacom could really, really quickly... What they needed, organisations could step forward, um, and you know, within a matter of days, we could get funding on the ground to support those initiatives. Um, we looked at collective impact tools. You know, we're really inspired by, I guess, some of those models like West London Zone. You know, those more kind yeah. of collaborative ways of working across across sectors.
0: Can I just ask where does this fall on the maybe the line is blurred between you know, consulting and actual delivery? Um, yeah. Because it it feels like. I'm a consultant. I'll hold my hands up to that. But we normally go in and we do a project and, you know, we like to build a relationship with with a council. But it it sounds like you were in there uh, as much more of a partner. And, uh, you know, you were clearly looking to bring funding in from other sources as well. So um, can you just explain a little bit about what sort of, you know, maybe even hybrid organization you are?
1: We get our gloves on and get in, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's partly about modelling, you mm-hmm. know, and, and showing, like, um, you know, we've got a very sort of relational approach in terms of how we how we work with others. And, you know, I think particularly with this early health project, it was really important that you know, we literally bring the capacity, you know, if, if we're going to test stuff, actually, for, you know, a children's um team who were already, you know, really, really I mean, that testing period was during the first wave of COVID. You know, there wasn't a lot of extra mm. staff hours in, in, in the in the system to kind of oversee that. So if we were going to test it in a meaningful way, we you know, capacity did step in and take that quite operational function. But it's for a time limited period of and yeah, so it is really key. But, but, you know, obviously it's about upscaling and sharing learning and giving people that that sort of um, framework that means, yes, we come in. But we, we don't stay in, um, and yeah. you know, and, and in terms of what that looks like in practice in Wirral now, and um, Wirral have just commissioned like a, a really exciting um, alliance model that was I think it's the first in 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 the land of sort of children's care, and um, that will see a really longer term commissioning um, approach and really collaborative model with a you know network of. Um, voluntary organisations and community partners. They've committed over five million pounds to support those third sector organisations working in partnership with the local authority. Um, we did a lot of work around helping, you know, articulate the values of the alliance and we've also developed a digital tool called Family Toolbox and um, that will give families a way to access support on their own terms without those pathways and you know referral models. But absolutely it's been local families and those organisations who are steering it now. Really interesting. And
0: I'm sure that there are people listening who will be interested to hear more about that. So I'm sure you'd be happy for them to uh, get in touch with you. Right. So the conversations you and I have had have been primarily around the Juno project, which I find absolutely fascinating. So could you tell us about that, please? Because I think it's such an important innovation.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, ditto, Andrew. Um, We're we're very, very proud of of the work that we're doing with you now. Um, So, I guess at the starting point, it was kind of late 2019, and on the back of some of the work we were doing with local authorities here, um, we were approached by a a sort of collaborative team of commissioners who, who were working across Liverpool City region to develop what they were calling their blueprint Change sort of sufficiency strategy um, for for you know for children in care, um, and asked really I guess for capacity to do some service design, uh, you know like lots of um, local authorities here they were facing rising numbers of children in care. They'd had an eleven percent drop of the number number of people fostering locally. Very few local authority or uh, third sector providers. Quality not where it you know needs to be in terms of residential, and um, so in amongst various other strands of work that they were looking at in terms of procurement frameworks and you know how our approach to fostering, and um, they asked us to explore how could we um, develop a not for profit model that would give. The local authorities um a bit more control that would improve quality and start to disrupt you know the the, the kind of the local environment so uh,
0: and this is particularly around residential care isn't it because i think a lot of people listening will know uh in fact there will be a lot of a lot of commissioners of residential care who will know the cost of yeah bringing the private sector providers in to do that type of thing and often it involves a placement that's out of area that's extremely expensive and I mean it's always just felt to me I say always I mean certainly since I've been aware of it as a part of the children's social care system that is totally broken.
1: Yeah yeah you know and and absolutely here you know we were looking at um you know we started by looking closely at the data and there's a child um, needing a residential placement every day here you know in a new child and every other day those children are sent way out of area and because we just we simply haven't got the bed never mind the appropriate home you know for that child and their needs so it you know it was it was a shocking sort of starting point for us and you know as we kind of consistently do we we worked um really really closely with care experienced young people you know to to understand what would a more you know, a higher quality experience look and feel like from, from their perspective. And um, we work closely with the commissioners to understand, you know, what, where their gaps were, what they needed and spoke to a lot of um, staff and people working in children's residential locally to understand their experience. Um, and that was the starting point really for the design and development of Juno, just to kind of outline some of the key things that we heard in that phase i mean from the children and it you know it really does align with what's come through in the um in the care review the absence of sort of nurturing loving relationships came out you know horribly loud and clear um and this sort of um impulse to kind of build a bubble around children in care and you know sort of through focusing on risk actively undermining relationships with people who could be there for that young person in the in, in the long run so mm. quite early on we started to you know in, inspired by you know some of the um, brilliant organizations here and, and further afield who have got that sort of relationship-centered approach looking at social pedagogy as mm. a practice model that we you know we could see offered that deep close attention to the quality of the relationship you know and, and a and a teaching framework through which to actually implement that in a safe way so that that came out really clear I think obviously young people as well talked a lot about in the moments where they had built a really great relationship three months later that person's moved on so you know again we we know only too well the issues with the workforce and retention so we hear that
0: a lot actually we hear that a lot as a problem that yeah yeah
1: you know and it's when you think of how many fragmented relationships are already there for for that for that child it's it's not something we you know we can ignore so when when doing the sort of service design for Juneau you know we could see that yes pay is, is important and you know paying people well for for what is a you know rewarding but challenging role actually you know building on the kind of training requirements that the statutory side of things says and you know again I think social pedagogy bringing in um a learning model that really would give team skills to do the to do the role and in in the way that they wanted and more mental health support both for young people and for the team and and we also started to explore really early the the kind of idea of if we could set this organization up as a CIC so obviously not for profit but so Um,
0: uh, just for people yeah community interest company most people will know that I think but just in case
1: Great. Which Sorry, is essentially
0: the I... legal form of social enterprise. Yeah.
1: Great. I've turned into that person who talks in acronyms Andrew. I can't. I can't believe <laughs> it. God. But um, so yeah, we, but we we went there because whilst um, obviously that gives control over, you know, it, it prevents people profiteering out of um, mm-hmm. out the business, um, and gives us an avenue through which we could sort of reinvest us in later years back into support for, for families um in a sort of early help space. We were also looking to explore, you know, if there's a sort of staff ownership element to the CIC where, you know, frontline staff, you know, lots of people we spoke to in those early days talked about the pain that came with somebody, particularly the larger care businesses, very, very far removed from the day making decisions about who's living in that home, you know, what's happening to that young person. Um, being so at odds with what with what the staff and on the ground were experiencing, so having a space and an avenue through which staff can really make decisions about the homes, about the development of the organisation, about how surplus is reinvested. And yeah. um, I guess, like you sort of John Lewis model.
0: You're pushing at an open door with me here. I mean, I, I've, yeah. mutual ventures has a long history of supporting mutualisation, and well, I, I mean, there's just so much evidence of the benefits of employee ownership and people in the organization having having an ownership stake. And that's not about profit, because as you say, it's a social enterprise model. So it's not about making more money. It's about ownership, control, accountability, feeling like it's your organization. And I I just think that is so powerful. And it it is an agenda item that's kind of dropped off from a central government perspective. But it's great to hear that there are people like you out there Still making it happen without necessarily the push from from central government. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, so that was. I mean, I'm trying to think of the times. It was sort of early 2020 that the the, the feasibility plan, the business model for Juno was there. Mm. Um, you know, and and you know, to be really to be really honest, Andrew, I think when we we started that work, we didn't foresee capacity delivering the, that that program. And it was as much a timing thing, than anything else. You know, we'd worked with the LCR commissioners um, and children to develop the plans. They were all approved um, by the directors of children's services here, March, twenty twenty. So which which is
0: which is a very prominent. (laughs) We'll all
1: remember it, unfortunately. Um, You know, so we could see there was a lot of work to be done around securing the investment required to actually, you know, bring Juno to life, you know, and we did meet some really you know, brilliant local uh, third sector organisations who were interested in, you know, in, in supporting this type of work in the long run. But timing-wise, you know, we we literally couldn't have <laughs> picked a worse moment. So, um, you know, we, we made the decision that capacity would set up GNO CIC and kind of incubate it initially. You know, we we have got the 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 resource at that point to you know to actually support you know finding the investment, finding the property. there's a huge amount of legwork to actually bring a residential organisation to life. So that's what we've been doing since really. And you know, it, being really honest, it's been a it's been a long journey to secure the funding. And um, you know, I, I did business development at the Riga and. With comparative ease, you know, could secure commissions from mental health trusts or, you know, you know, really big um, grants, and um, for shared reading. But, you know, it, it was it was really really difficult. And yeah, we went, we've landed with a sort of a kind of mixed model. Really, we've got some grant funding um, from Siegelman Trust, from the KPMG Foundation, and from the National Lottery. And um, we've got some social so investment from one of the local authorities here, um, who've, you know really actively committed to to making Juno happen and then we've got a number of smaller social investors as well so you know we've got there but it's taken longer than I would have imagined.
0: So can can I just ask you a couple of quick fire questions here just to make sure everybody who's listening is really clear on it so Juno is primarily around residential care and offering a different solution so this is presumably involving either the purchase or leasing of buildings and things
1: yeah yeah so it, it's absolutely it's going to be residential homes for children sort of 11 to 18 children we're anticipating four children living um in each home but yeah absolutely we're we, again we've got a sort of mixed approach at the moment so we've bought uh, well the social investor has bought our first property so that's currently being renovate at the moment to make it a really beautiful home. We're also working with some, you know, really brilliant registered social landlords locally who are purchasing off the open market for us. Um, and then again, we'll have kind of really reasonable long-term rental agreements and um, with options to purchase when, you know, when Juno's in a position to.
0: Great. And then the funding that you talked about from all of those different sources, was that to get it all set up? Uh, because presumably the councils will will pay for the service in the way that they would
1: yeah yeah absolutely um they will and you know long term you know the business is sustainable obviously without um you know without kind of grants and loans in future years but the, the kind of startup investment needed yeah. to build the teams to you know that obviously we, we've, have, we've got a considerable um refurb budget that we've needed to get and um, the property really really fit for purpose um yeah this there's there's yeah. kind of considerable startup cash needed
0: and at what stage are you at now in terms of launching the service timing wise
1: yeah. well we're really we're, we're tipping um from the very exciting, you know, theory to reality. So obviously we've got our first home. Um, we've got, a, we've made an offer on a second property as well. Um, we have just appointed our director of care who will be the RI and oversee the development of the team in Juneau. And we'll be launching the recruitment campaign for the care team in the summer with a view to opening our first home in Wirral up to the end of this year.
0: Wow that's extremely yeah. exciting and are you are you finding in your planning and modeling the eye wateringly expensive fees that are sometimes being paid by councils that there is a different way of doing it that's a better keeps kids closer to their communities and and is also more affordable for councils?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely a more cost-effective um, yeah. offer that we've got. It's, you know, being being really honest, Andrew, I think when we started, obviously there was a very clear call to action from the local authorities to keep the costs as low as we can. Um, if we're going to make this a really brilliant experience for children and the quality, the training and the support for the team, etc., is going to be fantastic, you know, it's there's a cost attached to that. So yeah, of course. Um, in terms of the model, you know, we're, we're – just below the average placement fee for for that Liverpool City region so it's definitely doable you know
0: but it's within the region it's close it's it sounds like there is a, a a huge amount of wraparound support that just isn't there elsewhere
1: Absolutely, you know, and we'll have, and um, there'll be, we're going to have a clinical psychologist working part time on the team who can, you know, really be working primarily with the team to sort of embed a trauma-informed approach, but available to offer fast and immediate support to the children and the team as needed. This capacity is going to play a sort of a support function we're going to do a lot of the kind of back office stuff that can take staff away from the you know interactions with young people so um you know be that kind of day-to-day finances and hr oversight and stuff like that so there's a there's a kind of core team who is supporting that that frontline team in the home to make sure that they can really focus on the children
0: yes. I love this, as you can probably tell, um, and you, you know from our previous discussions. But one of the things I really enjoyed about, uh, and still enjoy about some of the work we do, is that it was the supporting those organisations that would positively disrupt a really well-established marketplace where private providers we're very comfortable and this definitely feels like an example that if it works no pressure um if, <laughs> if it works really well you know that actually the rest of the country will be looking at this and thinking there's a different way of doing this we don't really need to be sending all of our money away to distant private equity funders, investors
1: yeah and, you know and there's some great organizations out there doing it and you know we're really keen um you know you're you're kind nod about you know let's see let's get it going and see if it works we're very very aware of that you know and we we are getting knocks on the door already you know from other parts of the country who are interested but we've got to keep our focus on making sure that the quality of what we do you know particularly as we prepare to open it is, is really there but we are really open to share learning and we want to collaborate you know with other not-for-profit you know providers and others who share the ethos and you know I think collectively we can you know, we really can reimagine what what a different I think, I think looks I think
0: like. This is really important. So a lot of the social enterprises and mutuals I know, they're really happy to help each other, share learning, support each other. It's not for profit, so you don't have shareholders breathing down your neck saying, "Oh, you know, don't be sharing your intellectual property because we yeah. want to keep all the profit ourselves." That's just not the way public services and social impact works really. So I think that is fascinating. If anybody wants to learn more about it, a quick Google capacity, Juno, there's lots of good information up there. I want to just draw some wider learning from your experiences here. So obviously your ability to have very close collaborations with councils and indeed in the case of Juno, a group of councils within a combined authority. You know, how do you build those partnerships and and how do you keep them going? Because it's it's not been an easy time to get the attention of councils, never mind to do something as innovative as this.
1: <laughs> uh, that, that's a really interesting question. I think, I guess with everything, ultimately it comes down to the relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and I think capacities weigh is very much about you know being real, honest, and straightforward, you know, and I think we've got a, a warmth and a sort of relationship centred way of working that means, you know, as and when we bump into people who share that same appetite for change and you know are looking for ways to to make that happen, you know, it's it's about those conversations and and you know bringing people together, um, and not just us and us and kind of local authorities, but you know we've got a really interesting network of you know, fair tech to clients and, and clients in health and, you know, other parts of um, the kind of broader space that, you know, bringing people together, you know, yeah. and not, not trying to dictate too much what happens, but trusting, you know. that yeah. I mean, and-
0: I'm, really, I'm really pleased that you've highlighted that, as that's one of the things our clients very kindly say about us, that we're more human, that, that we worry about having a good relationship. The work we do, I would say, is probably 50% a technical solution and what you're talking about is obviously quite a technical solution but at least 50% probably more is the relationships it's bringing people with you I, I know how hard it is to bring a number of different councils on the same journey with all of their different pressures all the different personalities that are involved
1: yeah I think as well like one of the key from a practical point of view you know, and even within one local authority, you know, you can get a department or a team who are really, really sold and, um, you know, and, and share that kind of sense of purpose and commitment to change. But then, you know, maybe some of the kind of corporate teams who've got very different pressures, they're not in the same place. And, you know, in terms of affecting change, um, I think that's where really listening to the communities that everyone's collectively serving is is vital because it's not about what I think and it's not about what the AD of early help thinks. It's about this is what your residents need and want. And it really grounds, you know, and and just brings a reality um, to conversations and plans that, uh, it, it cuts through that sort of a lot of those other dynamics that can be at play in, in any yeah. organisation, you know, much yeah. of authority. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. Going back to the Juno model, that strikes me as a person who's spent time talking with social investors and people operating in that space, that it strikes me as as a very, to use silly terminology, but an investable proposition where yeah. there's clearly... A pretty strong likelihood of a good outcome and i'm just interested if you have had any conversations with social investors you don't have to name them but just because i i've been talking to a number of people in this space on on the podcast and i'm really trying to press them on what they're doing to support innovation and to support new ideas that maybe aren't proven you know, if we think of how I keep talking about Silicon Valley and, you know, the fact that investors there invest in things that aren't proven yet, and that's yeah. how really big ideas happen. And I, I'm just interested in if you've, ha- if you've had any experience of trying to get interest in this.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that it's a really important point, Andrew. And, we, you know, we, yes, we've got two investors supporting Juno now. and But, you know, we've talked to many, many, many more you know, and I'd say, you know, the six, seven, eight organisations who, you know, we, we went through due, due diligence with and, you know, absolutely understand the problem, moved by, um, you know, the need, excited by the proposal and can see how it would work. But, you know, in simplest terms, I guess a feeling of you haven't got the track record yet. Can you go away and do one and come back?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: you know, absolutely, my ask I think would be let's just be a bit bolder. Like that's yeah. the purpose, isn't it? Really, of, of 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 social finance in that way. And yeah, that maybe there is a lesson to learn from Silicon Valley. And um yeah,
0: people listening to this podcast will be bored of me talking about it. <laughs> I am just determined to get to the bottom of how some of the learning from that and that kind of willingness to take risk to try and find the really big ideas. Because if there is a problem in public services right now that you could point out and say, this is a problem, it's children's residential care, at least in my mind.
1: That's it, you know, and the, the risk, you know, of course, we, I understand that, um, how that those decisions have got to be kind of worked through when it comes to level of risk and rates, etc. cetera. But, you know, the social investment that we've got is not cheap. Yeah. You know, if we were at a different stage in the business, so, you know, a kind of commercial bank would give us much, much better terms. So, yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, yeah. That, it is where it is. But, yeah, if if more social investors would like to come on the journey, yeah, we, we should definitely be having that discussion.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, there will be opportunities to think about this model elsewhere in the country. I haven't asked you about that ambition yet, but I know that you're very focused on making it work. Within, yeah. within Liverpool first and that's that's exactly the right thing to do so just re- really briefly I just want to ask you about some of the other work capacity does so um just looking at your website there there are programs like regroup and emerge can you just really briefly explain what they are
1: yeah of course um we do I mean it's worth flagging Andrew the I guess in the, in the approach that we teach children and families you know, we've got other projects of similar scale in, in health and, you know, looking at older people's care and, and things like that. So there's, there's there's a lot, there's a lot more um, that Crafty does. Regroup's an interesting one and um, regroup is something that we kind of developed during COVID, kind of knowing that the leaders we work with are, you know, really, really busy people and the kind of day-to-day challenges they face often means, you know, leaving those things that are about developing themselves and their network and having that you know, space to think and fall off the to-do list. So we um, made the commitment really to helping sector leaders find, you know, a bit of time out to, to share learning, to get inspired um, and to contribute to kind of bigger, bigger conversations. So Regroup does that. And um, we had, I'm trying to think of a really, like we did a session with Josh McAllister oh,
0: yeah.
1: um, earlier in the year, kind of with, you know, a group of commissioners. Very, timely, very timely. Yeah, you know, You know. Cause it, it's really important that those, um, you know, those leaders get to kind of contribute and share their experiences. So, and we've got a, a new one um, later this month, looking at kind of organisational culture. Um, so yeah, it's really space to to think and share.
0: So just on that, I'm fascinated by diary, oh, fascinated, that's the wrong word, interested in the diary management of some of these leaders. So I know a lot of them probably think oh, I couldn't possibly take half a day out to go and sit and talk because i've got all these meetings to do and i bet every single one of them arrives back and realizes that the world has continued to turn without them for that half day and actually they've come back recharged and with new ideas
1: absolutely absolutely you know and it's that age old reality of like chuck some nice foods in (laughs) (laughs) they're all more likely to turn up myself included so but you know it's it's important like you know as Whatever whatever it is that you're leading, you know, it's vital that you take that time out to to close.
0: Sophie, as a final question, and I could talk to you for a lot longer and we will talk much more ourselves after this. But just for the purposes of the podcast, final question. What bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact?
1: Mm. I'm always wary of people who like giving advice.
0: Well, I'm going to force you to do it, which gives yeah. a, a, a kind of yeah. get out of jail card.
1: From my experience, I would say, well, what's most important? Listen. Yeah.
0: Like,
1: you listen. You know. Uh, I think um, that's actually
0: come across really strongly from what you've said. Yeah. A little
1: bit. I mean, you know, and, and it's easy to get stuck in like default patterns, doesn't it? You know, in in yeah. any any role, and you know, we talk a lot capacity about you know the alarm bell when you hear yourself thinking or someone else saying oh but we've always done it that way like let's lose that thought and and connecting I think it's easy to think that you're you know I think I think any leadership role can be really lonely you know and, and that could not only affect your ability to work well and to enjoy it but also you know I think you can get stuck on a track that yeah that maybe isn't maybe isn't the best solution so yeah I think the value of connecting and connecting with people who you know we have got very different different experiences different roles different kind of parts of the puzzle to you Um you know and again at capacity you know we, we try and you know bring in funders together with community members and sector leaders and local authority leaders and things like that you know it's that's where that's where the magic happens when you've got yeah. connections yeah so
0: keep listening keep talking keep communicating
1: and it's, it's- worry if you if you think but we've always done it this way yeah Uh, yeah be be Um, prepared
0: to be bold and change if it makes sense yeah brilliant sophie thank you so much for your time
1: thank you it's been great
0: i learned a huge amount from that conversation i hope you did too i thought sophie's comments and views on the importance of relationships was spot on Uh, i certainly subscribe to the idea that any outcome you're trying to achieve yes there's a technical logical process that needs to be gone through but it's pointless if the relationships aren't there and you don't bring people on the journey with you and sophie's main case study for this approach the juno project i just think is so important and i want to spend a little bit of time talking about that now so children's residential care anybody working in children's services in a council will know that unless they have a very Uh, unique and different provider it is a very broken system the market is completely broken it's dominated by private provision that's very expensive that doesn't deliver great outcomes and very often places children quite a long way from their communities so something has to give here because children are not leaving that experience in a better place than they went in and in fact in most occasions they're coming back worse so the juno project whilst uh will be affordable that's not what it's about it's about delivering a much better outcome to reduce the chances of that young person that child needing to go back into residential care once they've been there so i think this is something to be watched really closely and hopefully other parts of the country can pick up on it. And maybe even capacity can begin conversations when they get it up and running in Liverpool. Um, They can begin conversations with other areas around the country because this is an intervention that is sorely needed everywhere. So that's all for this episode. Many thanks for your time. And don't forget to follow the podcast on the website. You can register there or on LinkedIn and Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.